Find your place in your Bible with me this morning, if you will, at the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We're talking today about loving where you live. Loving where you live. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about I live in the state of West Virginia or I live in the state of Ohio or I live in the state of Kentucky and I just love where I live. I hope that's true and that may be true for you, but that's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about I love my neighborhood and the closeness of everybody in my neighborhood or I love living in my rural setting where I'm out away from everybody. I hope you love your neighborhood. I hope you love uh, that rural setting wherever you want to be uh, to be able to live. I hope you love where you live. You love that locality. But when we talk today about loving where we live, we're talking about loving the people that God has placed around us right where we live. In other words, our mission field is right there before us. Our mission field is right there around us. Our mission field are those people that are in the network of people that are a part of our lives already. And to talk about that, I want us to look today at what is one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament, the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's a little difficult when you're going through a story that is so familiar to bring out something different or something new, but it's always important to make sure that we remember the teaching and the truth of this story. And I want to do that by giving you six statements. I don't think we'll get all six of those today, but I want to give you six statements that I hope that you'll pay attention to and that you'll let guide you in the coming weeks and months as we seek to love where we live, the people that are around us in our own community, right where we are, to love where we live. We begin today by being introduced to a lawyer. When you think of a lawyer, we're not thinking about somebody who prosecutes or somebody who defends or somebody who sits as, on a bench as a judge. We're thinking about somebody who is a student of the Old Testament law. Actually, it goes beyond that. We're thinking of somebody who was a scholar in the Old Testament law. More than 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And they have studied them and they know them and they understand them and they're teaching them to the people. And this lawyer is going to come to Jesus and is going to ask Jesus a question. Whether he's asking in a nefarious way or not will be discovered as we go through here, uh, but he's going to ask a question. And we begin in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And before we go further, let me just tell you what we're going to discover as we go through these following verses. You're going to find a lawyer's question. Then you're going to get Jesus' counter question. Then you're going to find the lawyer giving an answer. And then you're going to have Jesus giving a command. And you see that pattern on two separate occasions in the verses from verse 25 down through uh, verse 37. The, the lawyer asks the question. Jesus asks a counter question. The lawyer answers that question, and then Jesus gives a command. And so this student of the law, this scholar of the law, wants to know from this one that he calls a rabbi by calling him a teacher. He's referring to him as a rabbi, somebody who is teaching and discipling others. He says, I want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life. Well, you don't ever put Jesus to the test. Jesus always puts us to the test. 
And so Jesus gives a counter question in verse 26. He said to him, that is Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? In other words, you're a student of the law. You're a student of the Old Testament. Let me hear what your answer to your question would be. And Jesus turns it right back on him and causes him to have to go into what he has studied and what he thinks is the right answer to that question. Well, the lawyer comes back with the answer, verse 27. And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know those as the two great commandments, to love God with all of our being, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Something that you'll find interesting is that while we're going to be talking today and probably next week about loving your neighbor as yourself, that Luke also gives us an answer as to what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. He does that in verses 38 to 42. He tells a story about Jesus going to Mary and Martha's house. He's going there to enjoy a, a meal together with them. And Mary and Martha are busy together trying to get everything ready for the arrival of Jesus. And finally, Jesus comes to their house. And Martha continues to stay busy, probably in the kitchen around the table, trying to make sure everything is in place and all, of the, fi all the fixings for the meal are all together like they're supposed to be. But where do we find Mary? We find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of someone is the, is the phrase referring to somebody being a disciple of another. You see that on a number of occasions in the New Testament. They sat at the feet of Gamaliel, or they sat at the feet of this one or that one. They were sitting, and they were listening to, and they were learning from. And Mary had chosen, rather than to be distracted with all of the busyness and all of the activity, Mary had chosen to do the better thing which was to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he had to say so that she could obey him and she could love him. And that becomes a, a definition for what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. In other words, you can be as busy as you want to be. There can be all kinds of busyness going on, but what's most important is that you sit at the feet of Jesus and you're consumed with him, and you're listening to him, and you're enthralled with him, and he is the focus of your life. But that's not where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to look at the second of these commandments. This lawyer says back to Jesus, your neighbor, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Nine times. You find it first back in the book of Leviticus, but nine times you find that commandment repeated in the New Testament. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. You're to love where you live. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it continues in verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered rightly, Jesus says. You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Now, what should have happened at this moment is that this lawyer should have fallen down on his face before Jesus and said, what I need is mercy and what I need is grace because I can never perfectly love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and I can never love my neighbor as myself as I should, and I am a failure, and I, have fa- I am at fault, having broken the law of God. He should have been calling out for, for mercy and for grace, but, you know, people that are in an argumentative mode that think that they're right inevitably come back. And he comes back with a, a question. Here we come with the pattern again. Remember the lawyer asks a question. Jesus gives a counter, a counter question. The lawyer gives an answer, and then Jesus gives a command. The lawyer comes back with, with a question. This second beginning of this pattern that we see, verse 29, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I don't know if you see this or not, but I want you to see it. This man at this moment is trying to separate people into two categories. Those who are his neighbors and those who are his non-neighbors. He's trying to distinguish who it is I'm supposed to be showing this love to, that I'm supposed to be loving like I love myself. Who am I supposed to be giving this kind of love to? And he he wants to be able to distinguish, surely not meaning love the Gentiles or love the Samaritans. Surely you're not meaning love everybody. You mean very narrowly those that are within our own nation, our our own people, the Jewish people. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? trying to make that distinction. Well, Jesus, he gives his counter question. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Just so you know, the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is about 17 miles It's over a very rough road, at least it was at this point, over a very rough road. It descends by by more than 3,000 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho. There are rocky crags everywhere along this route. It falls away at some places down into that desert valley. It was a very dangerous road to travel. There were some Jewish historians who talked about the sheer number of bandits or robbers that would be found on this particular road at different times. And this man is making his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Maybe he's a priest. Maybe he isn't. Maybe he's a Levite. Maybe he isn't. He's Jewish. And he's on this road and on this particular day making his way down toward Jericho, which is where a lot of the priests lived. There are thieves that come and they attack him. They strip him of his clothing. And they leave him uh, wounded and they leave him half dead. The phrase half dead is a phrase that means he's as good as dead. He's virtually there. He's only a matter of minutes, if maybe, a, maybe an hour or two away from dying. And they leave him in this desperate circumstance. And Jesus is now, remember, responding to who is your neighbor. He's about to give a counter question to this lawyer. But before he gives the counter question, he gives the story. And he says, there's a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets beaten and stripped of his clothes. He's wounded and he's left lying in a ditch. And he's only just a little while away from dying. You ever feel like that? Ever feel like the world has beaten you and stripped you of everything? And they've left you and used you and they've walked away from you and have very little concern for you. 
because you no longer have any value to them. There's nothing else that they can take away from you. Can I tell you that there's people all around our lives, if we love where we live, there's people all around our lives, there's people all around our neighborhoods, there's people all around our offices and on our our building sites, there's people everywhere who feel exactly that way. The bandits and the robbers have stripped them and taken everything from them. And they find themselves in desperate circumstances just trying to cling to what little bit of life they have left. And that's the story that Jesus is drawing for us. But then he's going to do something that's going to shock every person who's listening to this story. He begins in verse 31. He says, now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. What do the priests do? The priests serve around the temple, don't they? They are the ones who were helping with the sacrificial system. Uh, Some of them would have uh, been involved in lighting the the candle inside the the holy place. They would have been involved in the singing and the choirs and the various things that were taking place. They were involved in representing God to man and man to God. And the Levite, excuse me, the priest comes down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And we might liken that priest to the pastors, maybe to the deacons of the church, maybe to the elders, or if you want to give us one of those high titles, the bishops. And you might like it to to those that are in the professional ministry, if you will. That's their vocational ministry. And here is that man in a vocational ministry. And what does he do? He simply ignores this man. He passes on the other side of the street. Do you see that? He goes to the clear other side of the street, and he walks past the man and gives him no assistance. Doesn't even stop to hardly even look at him. He obviously sees that he's there, but he doesn't doesn't give him hardly any attention at all other than to see him and to move away from him. You wouldn't think that a priest would act that way, would you? You wouldn't think that a pastor or a deacon would act that way, would you? It gets worse. Verse 32, likewise. In other words, in the same fashion, a Levite. Who are the Levites? They are the ones who assist the priests. The priests came through the family line of Aaron. The Levites obviously come from the son Levi. They are the assistants to the priests. They had their various responsibilities around the temple and their various responsibilities in the worship of God. And a Levite comes by. And this would be like the people in our church that are sitting here today or those that are watching us today. These are church people. These are the people who serve. These are the people who work and give of their time and give of their lives. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Interesting, isn't it? And unlike the priest who just simply went to the other side, at least the Levite comes over and looks at the man and then passes by on the other side of the road and leaves him laying in the ditch half dead. Just momentarily, this man will pass into eternity. Just momentarily, this man's life is going to ebb away. Which brings me to the first of the six statements I want you to write down. And it's this. We have to open our eyes and see. We have to open our eyes and see. 
You might say, Pastor, but both of those men saw him. The priest saw him and went to the other side of the road. The Levite goes over toward him and looks at him and then goes to the other side of the road. They both saw him. Yeah, they both saw him, but they didn't really see him. The priest and the Levite saw a bloody body, but they didn't see a person of value and worth. They saw a sad situation, but they didn't see an individual who desperately needed someone to help. You have to ask the question, why in the world would the priest and the Levite respond in this fashion? Was it because they were in a hurry to get home? Was it because they were afraid of being ambushed? I mean, the the danger that existed for the man who's beaten exists for them as well. Was it because they didn't want to get blamed for beating the man up? You know, somebody bending over him and say, ah, you did it. And they didn't want to be blamed for it. Or was it because they were concerned about ritual impurity? If I touch that man and he dies, then I'm going to have to go through this ritualistic process to even get qualified again to go back and render my service at the temple. Or was it because they thought that he was already dead maybe? We're not told why it is that they simply see this man go to the other side of the road and they walk on past him and they leave him laying in the ditch. What I have to say to you today is that we have to open our eyes and we have to see. We have to see like Jesus sees. We have to recognize that every person is a person of value and every person is a person of worth. We've become so jaded in our society. I sometimes find myself so jaded in the society in which we live where we see so many troubled people and so many broken people that we just get to the place that it's as if we don't even really see them though we see them. We don't really see the worth of those individuals. We don't really see the image of God in those people. We don't really see the souls that each of them have. We don't see them the way God sees them. Oh, we see them, but we don't really see them. And the story of the Good Samaritan is a reminder that if you're going to love where you live, you've got to open your eyes and you've got to see. You say, it's difficult. I know it's difficult. It's hard at times. It's painful at times. It's, it's, it, it's hurtful at times to see what's going on around us. But if we don't see what's going on around us, we'll never be able to love where we live. We'll never be able to love our neighbor as ourselves We see the neighbor, and we see the trouble they're in, and we see the difficulty they're having, and we see, but we don't want to be involved with it. And so we don't really see it. We just sort of look past it and move on by them and hope that somebody else will see them in a more effective way to help them. You've seen a number of stories like this over the years, if I give you this one, you're going to be reminded of some others that we've heard about from the news. But this is one that especially struck me when I had heard about the story. It happened a number of years ago to a young woman who was in her late 20s. And as she was going home, on her way home, a man attacked her, began to assault her, and began to stab her. Again and again, assaulting her and stabbing her and assaulting her and stabbing her. It took over a half an hour to murder her. It took over a half an hour to murder her. 
She was screaming repeatedly for somebody to come to my aid. Somebody help. I don't know what all the words were that she was saying. I don't know all the things that she was yelling, but she was screaming. You knew she was in trouble. And here's the troubling thing. There were 38 people who were looking from their apartment windows, who were interviewed by the police. 38 people looking on from their apartment windows watching the crime take place. And not one, not even one, bothered to even call the police let alone go down and do something to try to save this woman's life. 38 people interviewed by the police that saw what was taking place, looking at it through the windows of their apartments, didn't even call the police. They saw, but they didn't see. They're like the Levite and the priest, and they see something, but they don't see the value of the person. They don't see the worth of the individual. They don't see the image of God in that individual. And when they were interviewed as to why they hadn't done anything, the most common response they heard back was, we just didn't want to get involved. We just didn't want to get involved. If we're going to obey this command of Jesus, or this command of, of God, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. It means that we've got to open our eyes and we've got to see those people that are laying in the gutters of the streets today are people that matter to God. Those people who have a needle in their arms and are overdosed and they desperately need a Narcan treatment to revive them are people who bear the image of God. Those people who are going through the difficulties of life and they barely have their heads above the poverty line are people that matter to God. And we as the church have got to open our eyes and we've got to see. We've got to quit burying our heads in the sand. We've got to quit acting as if we didn't notice We've got to quit saying, I just don't want to get involved. That's really not my place to get involved. We have to open our eyes and see. But do you know what really makes the difference in this story? And do you know what's about to happen that Jesus is about to say that is scandalous? Jesus is about to make a hero out of someone in this story that is absolutely scandalous to the Jewish people. And as you already know, it's a Samaritan. I don't have time to take you back to give you the history of the Samaritans, but just for the shortened version, it's Jews who intermarried with Gentiles so that you have a mixed race of people. And the result of that is what? The Jews disliked the Samaritans, and the Samaritans disliked the Jews. You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes through Samaria and sits down at the well, and the Samaritan woman comes out, and Jesus says, Would you give me something to drink? And the woman says, what are you doing, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That was the temperament. That was the spirit. That was the attitude. And yet, what is Jesus about to do? Jesus is about to go past 
somebody who is a priest and somebody who is a Levite who has no question as to their nationality. And he's about to use a character that is scandalous when the Jews thought of it. Notice he goes on, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, here's what makes the difference. He had compassion. Will you circle the word compassion? He had compassion. What was it that the priest lacked? Compassion. What was it the Levite lacked? Compassion. What was it this lawyer asking these questions lacks? Compassion. He lacked compassion. But there was a Samaritan, and this Samaritan comes down this road. He sees this man, and what is scandalous in the story is that the one who has compassion is the one that the Jews, for the most part, despised. That brings me to my second statement this morning. Not only do we have to open our eyes and see, we have to open our hearts and feel. We not only have to open our eyes and see, we have to open our hearts and feel. What does it mean to have compassion? It means to be moved emotionally. It means to be moved deeply within yourself. It means to have pity. It means to feel the hurt in your own heart that somebody else is feeling. Now, I understand that's difficult. Again, we have compassion fatigue. A lot of us have compassion fatigue. There is a, a, a week that goes by. Most of the time, it's not a day that goes by. That there isn't somebody who calls me or contacts me or comes to see me whose life isn't falling apart in some fashion. They're not broken in some fashion. And some nights you go to bed and you think, do I have any more compassion to give? And sometimes you feel the same way. Do I have any more compassion to give? But I want to remind you that Jesus looked on people with what? He looked on people with compassion. He looked on cities, and he saw people, and he had compassion on those people. You remember the story that Jesus tells a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son? And the son takes his inheritance, and he goes down, and he squanders his living so that he has nothing left, and he's down here in a pig pen, and he comes to himself, and he says, you know what I've got to do? I've got to go home, and even if it means being a servant in my father's house, it's better than where I am now. And the son begins making his way home, and you read between the lines, you know that the father is out there every day looking for his son to come home, and when he sees his son crest that hill, though that son has wasted his entire life and wasted everything about his life, when the father sees his son coming, what does it say about him? It says he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. And Jesus had compassion on people again and again. Aren't you thankful for the compassion that Jesus had for us? Squire Parsons wrote a song that says this, he came to me, oh, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. He came to me when I was bound in chains of sin. He came to me when I possessed no hope within. He picked me up and drew me gently to his side, where today in his sweet love I now abide. 
Do you know what brought Jesus from heaven? It's his love for us. It's his compassion on mankind. He sees people who are broken. And rather than seeing them and walking on by them, he came into our world and he suffered the most horrendous death you could possibly suffer and took upon himself the penalty of our sins and was buried in a, in, a, in a tomb and raised that third day victorious over sin and over death. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we're going to love where we live, we've got to open our eyes and we've got to see the people in our neighborhoods and we've got to see the people in our offices and we've got to see the people that we call our friends and we've got to open our hearts and feel We've got to ask God to help us to feel what they're feeling, to have pity upon them, to see the desperation of their circumstances. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't know why their life is empty. They don't understand how the things they're using will only run out in the end and provide no real satisfaction. And if we don't love where we live, where our hearts are opened so that we can feel what they feel, we'll never be moved to go to them. Here's a man in this story, this, this story where Jesus says it's a good Samaritan or a Samaritan. By the way, to the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's what we call this story. But as far as the Jews were concerned, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. But let me ask you a question. If you were the man who had been beaten and stripped and robbed and left for dead, you think you'd care whether it was a priest or a Levite, or a Gentile, or a Samaritan that came to help you? What it takes is compassion. It takes people who look around and recognize and seek to try to feel what other people are feeling so that you have a desire to do something to help them and to bless them. Terry Muck is an author and he tells the story about a man that lived in a neighborhood, and he was neighbors with an unbelieving family. These two families talked over the fence, and they had things in common in that respect. They shared, you know, the, the tools of grass cutting and things of that nature. But that's about the extent of their conversation. They just sort of talked in generalities to each other over the fence. But then the unbelieving neighbor's wife was stricken with cancer. Within three months, she was gone. She was dead. This unbelieving man writes, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations in the service, uh, in, the, in the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. I wonder what he was thinking about doing. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor followed me. I guess he stayed all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A faith that can produce that kind of love is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. You realize most people don't feel loved? 
They feel used. They feel beaten. But they don't feel loved. Would you be willing to give up a whole night to follow a neighbor that you are concerned might be seeking to harm himself in the depth of his own grief? And then when the morning light comes, offering to go get breakfast together and helping to begin a pathway toward healing of going through his grief and helping him to find that the Lord loves him even though his wife is now gone from him? Would we be willing to have that kind of compassion? We have to open our eyes and see. We have to open our hearts and feel. To open our hearts and feel. The old saying is that people don't want to know what, they don't want to know that uh, you care until they, they don't want to know what you know until they know that you care. Did I get that right? They don't want to know what you know until they know that you care. Who are you caring for today? Who are you reaching out to? Who are you seeking to feel what they're going through? Who are you sympathizing with, having empathy for? Who is it that you've opened your heart so that you can feel what they're feeling? Well, it didn't stop there. You'll notice it goes on, verse 34. So he, Jesus telling this story, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal before him uh, and brought him, I should say, to an inn. And here's the words, took care of him. If you look down in verse 35 in the middle, uh, he tells the innkeeper, take care of him. But what does he do? He goes to him. He bandages up the wounds. He pours in oil and wine. He sets him on his own animal, and he brings him to that inn. And then he pays the expense for that man to stay in that inn. Not only do we have to open our eyes and see and open our hearts and feel, we have to open our hands and help. Did you hear me? We have to open our hands and help. And here is a man who had every reason. The other two men, you would have thought this being one of their own brethren, would have stopped and helped him. But here is a man, the good Samaritan, who could have said, you know what, the way they've treated us through the years, I don't think I'll do anything for this man. I'm going to be the one that walks on the other side of the street and walks down the street. But he didn't do that. Can you imagine the Jewish audience that's listening to this right now? Just imagine, you're the Jewish audience. You're listening to Jesus tell this story, and he just made a hero out of a Samaritan. It would be a little bit like making a hero out of an Islamic terrorist. If you want to get the idea of how they would have felt and how scandalized they would have felt at this moment. And they couldn't believe that Jesus was saying these things, that a Samaritan went and did what our own brethren weren't willing to do. This man not only opened his eyes and his saw and opened his heart and he felt, but this man opened his hands and he helped. I mean, this was no easy task. Probably the strips that he used to, to bind the wounds were torn off of his own clothes it's not likely that he was carrying extra strips for the purpose of being able to bind up somebody's wounds that day, likely torn off of his own. The, the oil and the wine, it softens up the wounds that were on his body. The wine is a disinfectant to try to keep uh, the infection out. Uh, he puts him on his own animal. Now the good Samaritan is the man who is 
walking the animal along. He's in the servile position while this one that he's just rescued is riding on the animal. And in this servile position, he brings the man to the inn and he takes care of him. Did you see that at the end of verse 34? He doesn't just leave him with somebody and walk away. First, he takes care of him. He opened his hands and he helped. He opened his hands and he helped. You see, when you start seeing people who are broken and beaten and left by the world around them, even though they don't know what's wrong or why they're in their condition, they only know that their, uh, their life is ebbing away from them, and you begin to open your heart so that you can feel what they must feel. I hear some of the stories that are told to me through some of the ministries of our church about women that are in prostitution and the kind of circumstances out of which they have grown up. Maybe if you stopped and listened to their story, you'd feel a little differently about rescuing those women, right? But then they opened their hands. He opened his hands, and he went to help. Let me bind up your wounds. Let me pour in some disinfectant. Let me put some oil on it that will help to begin the healing process. Let me get you to a safe place where you'll be okay. Let me put my hands to this. Did the Levite do that? Did the priest do that? Did the preacher do that? Did the members of the church do that? It was the least likely person who did that. He put his hands to the task in order to help a man who was beaten and he was broken, even though they were by nature enemies of one another. You have watched, I know, the various presidents give the State of the Union. I don't know if there was one this year or not. I don't remember there being one. But we've seen the State of the Union addresses by the presidents, and you know that generally at some point the president's going to stop his speech, whatever he's saying, and he's going to point to somebody that's up in the gallery who is an American hero, not a military person, just an everyday, ordinary kind of an individual who, who's an American hero, have him to stand or have her to stand, and everybody's going to applaud that person. It was President Ronald Reagan who started that tradition. He introduced a man by the name of Lenny Skutnik, and it became so popular with the following presidents that the reporters, when they were moving toward that day of the address, the State of the Union address, they would start asking the question, who is the, who is the Skutnik this year? Who is the Skutnik this year? Who is the hero this year? Do you remember Lenny Skutnik? Google his name. S-K-U-T-N-I-K. Lenny Skutnik. Google his name and watch the video for yourself. Lenny Skutnik was a federal worker who was walking down the street just minding his own business until on that particular day, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River. The flight had just taken off. It was going from Washington to Florida. It developed ice on its wings, and it couldn't get elevation. It was just trying to clear the Washington's 14th Street Bridge, but instead it went down into the Potomac. In those moments, there were six people. Everyone else died. 
There were six people who were thrown out of that plane into the freezing waters of the Potomac River. They began immediately working, the EMS began immediately working to try to bring those six people, but they're rafts. They couldn't get over the ice. They couldn't get out to them. And finally, they get an, a helicopter that comes out and lowers down a rope. And they ask the people, these, one of these six, to hold onto the rope. They only had one rope to begin with, one rope, to hold onto the rope. And they would lift them up out of the water, and they would pull them over and drop them on shore. And then they would go back to try to rescue another one. But one of those that was in the river was a woman. She was so frozen, 30 minutes of, of time in, in that river, and you're dead. She was getting close to that. She was already beginning to submerge, a little at a time submerging. There were people on the bridge above who were watching this unfold, and they were cheering for her, grab the rope, grab the rope, grab the rope. But she was so cold, she couldn't get her arms up to grab the rope for herself so that she could be pulled to safety. That's when Lenny Skutnik realized that something had to be done. Just a common, ordinary kind of a guy. Nothing all that special about him. He's just like you and me. He saw that it, something had to be done, and this woman was going to drown in a matter of the next moment or two. You know what he does? He tears off those outer garments and he dives into the water of the Potomac River. He swims out to this woman. He takes hold of her and he pulls her back to the shore and saves her life. Of the six people, five of them were saved that day. That one woman was saved by Lenny Skutnik. It was a man who saw that there was something that needed to be done, who had compassion in his heart, and he opened his hands and helped. He opened his hands and helped. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're going to be confronted with something as dramatic as that, though I hope if you and I are confronted by something that dramatic that we might be willing to do something like that. That would have been a great place for an amen. I hope that we would be brave enough to be able to do that. Just go listen to what Lenny Skutnik has to say about that rescue. Just Google it. It's on YouTube. It's an incredible thing to listen to. A man who was willing to open his hands, and he was willing to help. The president called him a hero. Do you know what Jesus would have called him? Jesus would have said, he's a good neighbor. He's, he's, a, good, he's a good neighbor. He's a good Samaritan. Jesus would have recognized him and called him something different than a hero, but Jesus would have recognized him. Because there was a man who opened his eyes and saw, and a man who opened his heart and felt, and a man who opened his hands and helped. I, I'm going to stop the message at this point. And we're going to pick up the other three points next week. But we gave you something when you came in a few minutes ago, a card. It says, love where you live. And on the other side of that card, there's a place for you to write the names of people people that are across the fence from you in your own neighborhood, people that are just down the street from you, or maybe if you live in a rural setting, it may be a pasture field or two down, but you know who they are, and they know who you are, and you have general conversation every once in a while, 
It may be somebody that you work with. It may be somebody in your own family. But I'm asking you to take this card, and I'm asking you between now and next message to write the names of those people on this card and to promise that you're going to pray for those people and you're going to pray for open doors. And that when those open doors come, that you'll have the eyes to see and the heart to feel and the hands that are ready to help. And you'll say, I'm going to pray for these people. You're going to put it in your Bible. It's going to become a bookmark for you. Because every time you open your Bible, you're going to see that card and you're going to tell yourself and remind yourself, God expects me to love where I live. I don't have to go to the other side of the world. God calls some people to do that. For us, it's to the other side of the street or to the other side of the fence or the other side of the office hallway. And we see and we feel and we put out our hands and we say, let me help you. Let me help you. And you commit yourself to praying again and again and again for these dear people. You know why I want you praying for them? You say, I'm not going to write that down. I'm going to keep it in my mind. You won't pray for them and you won't see when they have a need. If you don't write it down and you don't bring it out and you don't call their name out and visually look at it and verbally say it again and again, you won't see, you won't feel, and you won't put your hands out to help. You start praying. You start thinking about these people on a regular basis. And all of a sudden, you know what happens? This has happened so many times to people that I know. All of a sudden, they've been praying for somebody. They've been thinking about somebody on a regular basis. All of a sudden, they see an open door. And they see an opportunity. And the opportunity is for me to love where I live. I don't have to go to the other side of the world. He put me in my mission field. It's my neighborhood. It's my workplace. It's my school. That's my place. That's my place to love. And I'm going to start loving people right where I am.